0: Good morning, everybody. You may be seated. My name is Jenny. I am the interim rector at this church. If that is a term you've never heard before, it's just a fancy Anglican term for lead pastor. We're going to start using it because we're Anglican. And um, we should start saying the words that are ours. So um, so you'll hear me say that more and more. Um, there are, it seems like, some new folks. So as horrifying as this may be, maybe turn to someone close to you that you don't know and say good morning. Introduce yourself. And then we'll come back. (coughs) Thank you for doing that. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, we are closing down a church season that's called Ordinary Time. If you are familiar with the church calendar, um, we have these sort of high holy seasons like Advent and Lent and Easter that are like so wonderful, so great to be in together. And um, and then we also have a very long season that we call Ordinary Time. If you've ever seen a church calendar, it's like the big green uh Circle, half circle (laughs) in the circle of the church calendar. And we call it the great green growing season. And the reason for this is it's an opportunity for us to lean into these high church seasons that we get for half the year and then just to be regular, ordinary people living our regular, ordinary lives the rest of the year, the next half of the year. To lean into what it means to be a person who grows in the midst of like the normal, everyday stuff, to be faithful in those spaces. As a preacher, Ordinary time is very long because we do the same thing for six months, and um, it is wonderful and challenging, and I've loved being in the gospel of Luke Luke with you all. I'm also very excited to uh, move into Advent in a few weeks, so um, so it's going to be good. But this is like our last sort of like really digging in and leaning into something that we have been thinking about and studying about for for months now, which is um, the last part of Jesus' journey to the cross in luke and so we've got a little more work to do you with me let's do it luke chapter 17 if you have a bible if not we have it on the screens this is a story about when jesus cleanses 10 lepers it's also a story that is uh unique to the gospel of luke if that is of interest to you The text says, On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. That's where you all go, <gasps> let's try it. And he was a Samaritan. Oh my gosh, that was so good. <laughs> then Jesus asked, we're not 10 made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to the man, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, One of the things that's really important in the Bible in general, but in particular, I think, in the Gospel of Luke. So if you've been, like, studying those kind of characteristics of the Gospel with us, this is one of those things. Luke loves to talk about the geography of where Jesus is. Because so much of his Gospel is Jesus on a journey, he's going to tell you where he is on that journey. Either by saying the place names like he does here or by telling you that he's like on a mountain or near a river or things like that. Because what it does is it literally and spiritually sets up for us what's about to happen in the story. And that is no different from what happens right here in the beginning of this story. He tells us three place names that Jesus is still heading towards Jerusalem. He also says that he is between two regions, Samaria and Galilee. So by telling us that he's still on the way to Jerusalem, what he's doing is hearkening back to chapters and chapters before when Jesus begins this journey to the cross. And it says he sets his face towards Jerusalem, that Jesus is still on that journey. In other gospels, that journey is a lot shorter. Jesus sort of turns towards Jerusalem and begins that journey that way, and like a couple chapters later, he's in Jerusalem going to the cross. Uh, For Luke, it's like 10 chapters. I mean, it's a long time that Jesus is on this journey. So what Luke is doing here is he's saying, yes, he is still on his journey. (laughs) The journey is long in Luke, and he's still on it. The second thing he does is he talks about Jesus being between these two regions of Samaria and Galilee. Now, these two regions are really important because Samaria is a region of Gentiles, Samaritans, and Galilee is a place of Jewish people. Now, these people were not only just sort of like separated by this landscape, but they were also separated um, ethnically, and they uh, were enemies, Jews typically didn't interact with Gentiles in general because there was this religious um, nature to their separation that all Gentiles were unclean. And if you came across one, you had to actually go to the temple and do like a ritual to, become, to be made clean again. So they didn't associate with one another. And you can imagine if you come up to someone who is like ritually unclean and you are a clean person and you don't want to have to do the whole temple thing, what your body language would be. I mean, it's like, the, the most intense kind of visceral thing when these two people meet each other. And not only that, but for Jews and Samaritans in particular, uh, they were enemies. They hated one another. And so to be, for Jesus, in this border, um, on, in between these two places, Samaria and Galilee, what Luke is saying to us is, anything can happen. Be prepared to be amazed or surprised, be prepared for Jesus to do something maybe you're not expecting. All of that, just in this first line of the text. That's why geography is important, and topography, and all of those good things. So the first part of this story, I, th- I really think this story can be separated into two, two kind of parts, because this first part about the ten lepers being healed and going away and actually being healed, you could save the end, After the end of it, I mean, it's a beautiful healing story. It's a good story to read. There's a lot for us there. There's also sort of a part two of when the one guy comes back. So we're going to split it into those two stories this morning and look at what each each story has to offer us. So the first part, I think, is really just about healing. What happens in this healing story? So there are ten men with this skin disease. And it's what the Bible typically refers to as leprosy. And this is not to sort of like generalize their pain that they're going through. Um, but what people did with skin diseases back then is they they came together, no matter what the skin disease was, and, um, and formed these communities. Because if not, they would be left alone. They were totally cast out from society. No one took care of them for fear of not just being unclean, but being uh, catching the disease, whatever it was, and so these people would form these, like what they called leper colonies, and um, and they would they would join together and and live together and figure out how to survive together. And often these communities lived in these places that were. Um, secluded enough to not be near people, you know, to keep their distance, as the text says, but is also close enough to high-traffic areas so that when people pass by, they can ask for charity. Excuse me, can you, can you help a brother out? So um, that's exactly what's happening in this scenario. Jesus is walking along a road that was likely a, a busy enough road, where these people were camping out near there and standing by the roadside, ready to ask for the charity that they need. And somehow they see Jesus and they know who he is, um, that he is the type of person who could possibly heal them. And so they call out to him and they say, Jesus, would you heal us? And Jesus says to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, the text says that they were made clean. So that's the first part of the story. I want to look at a couple things happening here. The first is that Jesus tells them to go show themselves to the priests Now, showing yourself to a priest after you were healed was the law. It was not only what Jesus was saying and they were being obedient to that, but that was according to Levitical law, that's what you did. If you somehow were healed by some uh, wonderful turn of events, your very first job was to then go to the priests in the temple and to show yourself, kind of like confirmed this healing in you. And they're not just um, healed and then they go show themselves to the temple priests, What does it say? It says that when they walk, when they start going towards the temple is when they are healed, is what we learn. I love this story because Jesus treats the lepers as already healed when he tells them what to do, when he tells them their next step. And it's in their act of obedience that their healing actually happens. And this says so much to me about how life with God works. How I have seen God work in my own life, not just healing, but just growth in general, formation of my own life and my own heart and what God is calling me into. We actually, friends, have the agency to act in obedience, to do the next thing more often than we think we do and before we've actually maybe seen the fruit of the healing and the growth in our own lives that maybe even perhaps that the stepping out in faith and doing the next thing, doing the obedient thing, is the thing that brings about the healing in us, is the way that Jesus affirms that healing in us. This text has been making me think a lot about healing texts, which I often do when I get to to a text that has healing in it. Not only because I think we should, I think it's a good practice, um, but because they are so um, different, all of Jesus' healing stories. One day we'll just have a class and we'll read through all of them. It would be great. Um, but they're so different. And they are very similar in ways as well, which is important to note. But the way Jesus interacts with each person or each group of people is so individualized and so perfect for just who they are and just what they need, is, I think, is just beautiful. But it's had me thinking, this, this text being similar to another one in the Gospel of John, where a man is sitting by these healing pools in the temple. And he's been laying there for 38 years, unable to be healed. And Jesus comes to him and he says, do you want to be made well? And the man gives him a hundred excuses. Like, I can't get down to the pool. Every time it's my turn to do it, somebody else gets down there before me and I can't do it. And Jesus is like, that's not what I asked. (laughs) What Jesus does say to him is, After all these excuses, stand up, take up your mat, and walk. And I have been this week caught up in this idea of not knowing if it happened, if it really worked, if the healing or growth is there, and getting up and doing the next thing anyways, you know. What does it look like for us as Christians to be healed but not know it until the thing gets acted out, lived out? I think often for a lot of us, we really believe that God is a way maker and a miracle worker and can do incredible things. What we don't believe is that he can do them in us or through us. And so we question us more than we question God sometimes. And so God gifts us in this, that he says, you are healed and you're going to know that by walking, by going and doing the next thing, by doing the very obedient thing. So this morning, my, my, maybe my pastoral word to you in light of this text is to, um, to do that thing. I think the Holy Spirit is probably highlighting or could highlight for all of us something in our life that is the thing they're meant to do next. To move forward in obedience. The thing that maybe we don't know, we haven't seen the fruit of the healing or the miracle or the growth yet. And yet we are, God is asking us to move forward and do that thing. For a lot of us, it's finally making the therapy appointment. Just do it. Your pastor said so. For some of us, it's advocating for ourselves at work finally. Or putting yourself out there with a new group of people. Today's a great day to do that, second Sunday. Or asking that person out on a date. I know that sounds silly, but that is a like a, a proof of healing in some of us. Proof of faith. They might say no. You'll be okay. Ask him out. Do it. Or you're scheduling the meeting to have the hard conversation. Whatever the next thing is for you, there's probably a different one in here for, for each of us. Those are the ways that I think Jesus wants to live out his healing in us in so many ways live out the growth that he is doing in us right now is to not say here's all the proof now go and be faithless and do it now that you have all the evidence but to go and do it so that you can see that god actually wants to work in and through you in your own life that you are not something that can hinder the work of god The lesson of all these 10 lepers is that they responded to the words spoken over them by Jesus. They listened and they obeyed and they believed or they didn't, which is also another comforting thing to me. That we can step out and do the obedient thing and not be chock full of faith that it'll work like the story of Peter when Jesus calls him out onto the water and Peter starts walking out there and then he starts to sink. It's like initially he believed it was going to work and then halfway through he was like, this was a huge mistake. How many of us have done that? Like that's what this story will look like for some of us and that's okay. Jesus will still do the miracle in us. He'll still do the work and the growth. It's not about us. It's about something bigger than us. And then we have the second part of the story, which I would say is about salvation is what it means to respond to Jesus not in an act not just in an act of obedience but with your whole life. So the second part of this story is about the man who came back that 's what we'll call him. I had a wonderful preaching teacher in seminary, and she would often uh, get us to act out scenes because there 's something about locating where the people are in a scene that can really reveal what 's happening and i was i don 't often do it because I should, but i don 't um, but this week it was like it, it, like i couldn 't stop thinking about it, and this idea of all these these ten men coming close to Jesus and asking for healing, probably a busy road, and then like them all leaving, and Jesus remaining there. And eventually, at some point, this one guy comes back. And so it's like probably like this with the lights, you know, if you're watching a stage version of it. Just Jesus and this one guy, and like it zooms in on them in this beautiful moment that's happening between the two of them, this like intimate moment between this man and Jesus. So what's happening here is this guy goes away with the other men in obedience towards the priests, And along the way, realizes he's been healed. We don't know what this looks like. I'm like wondering, maybe did everybody else realize that they were healed along the way? Or were they just so focused on getting to the temple that they didn't notice? But this guy did. I don't know. I don't know what the story is. Um, But we do know that he does realize it. And it makes him turn to Jesus, turn back to Jesus. He throws himself at Jesus' feet, the text says, and thanks him. And Jesus says to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Which should cause us to ask the question, like, wasn't he already made well? So what's happening here? He's already been healed. Something else is happening. That phrase, your faith has made you well, was a way for Jesus of speaking to something that was more than just a physical healing. It was more than just a singular event. It was a holistic healing, a salvific moment in the life of this man. The first healing was a circumstantial healing, And not to undermine that, because that is wonderful. Like I said, that first part of the text could be the story in and of itself. But here what we get in this story that is precious is we get the part two. This part that's wholly different from that first kind of healing. As our evangelical brothers and sisters would say, the man got saved is what happens here. I uh, was a a young person once, a middle schooler, and became a Christian through a, uh, a wonderful ministry in my middle school. It's one of the reasons I love student ministry. And we would go on these retreats, you know, as you do, and everyone would get saved. And, or most of us, the good ones of us at least. Just kidding. And one year I was in seventh grade going on this retreat, and this very popular girl named Amanda, who was in eighth grade, they're always named Amanda, aren't they? You're here and your name's Amanda, you're welcome. I'm happy you're here. Um, so, Amanda comes on this retreat and she came because a boy she liked was there, which, as a former youth pastor, I loved once the kids got crushes on each other because it meant they came to stuff. Um, so that they're all on retreat right now. <laughs> Jesus. Actually, that's why they're not here. So, Amanda came because she liked this boy. And um, was not a Christian, but had a lot of influence in, in the eighth grade. And um, so we came back from that retreat, and the next day, on Monday at school, she um, started telling everyone, full volume, "I got saved." And the word that kind of started going around was that Amanda had been in some sort of like fiery car accident, and someone pulled her out. She was saved. And when she was, like, confronted with this narrative, she was, like, that is basically what happened to me. Like, that is how she experienced the salvation of Jesus on this retreat. That, like, her life was a fiery car wreck. And that someone pulled her out of it. That, like, she had a full, like, life change moment on this retreat. Like, that kind of salvation. So I know I joke when I'm, like, saying the word, like, the the phrase getting saved. and, And it's become sort of this, like, thing that's lost its goodness in a lot of our culture, but like that was the experience that she had, even as a young person, 12 or 13, however old she was, that she had an experience with Jesus that utterly changed the way she thought about herself and her life, the way that she lived into all the things that were already present in her life. This is what it looks like when we have these moments of salvation with Jesus, I think what happens here is what happened to all of us when we became Christians. And that happens to us again and again in our lives as we encounter Jesus in these very real salvific kind of ways. That something in our spirit recognizes something in his spirit. And something in us like breaks open and, and sees him for who he is and offers him what he deserves this guy saw things differently than the nine. He saw Jesus differently. I love this thought of him, you know, walking away, going towards the priests at the temple, realizing he's healed, and then thinking, like, wait a second, that guy's the priest. Going to go to the temple, I'm like, wait a second, that guy's the temple. The place where I offer myself after being healed, the place where I can meet with God, is actually in his presence, and not somewhere else. There were two places in the world at this time where Jew versus Gentile didn't matter. And one of them was in leper colonies because they had a lot bigger problems. They were all unclean, so there wasn't worth fighting over that anymore. The other place where Jew versus Gentile didn't matter was in the presence of Jesus. The only two places. There was something about him. There was something about his presence that made everything clean. That made everything new. That made it the best version of itself. It took being a Samaritan for someone for whom this this defining and oppressive reality was real for them to see Jesus for who he was. To be changed in that deep sort of like salvific, formational, life-changing way. What this text reveals in us, I think, is two two responses of faithful Christians to encounters like this, to the person of Jesus and the the things that he does in our life. Um, There's the option of, like, obedience, you know, Um, being good girls and boys. A lot of us come to church because this is true for us. It's the right place to be on a Sunday morning. Like my mama taught me, you know, those kinds of things. Like we come in obedience, we do the things that we're supposed to do out of that place and that's not wrong. That's true for some of us. And there's another response, something that's deeper, something that's more intimate with Jesus, a life that doesn't just respond in obedience, but like actually pours itself back out to him. Not just following the rules, but following the spirit, following the love and the gift of knowing him. One of my favorite stories, is repeated in multiple gospels, is the story of the woman you' all know it probably who buys the expensive perfume and goes to the house where Jesus is, and she breaks it and pours it out at Jesus' feet. It was a huge expense. And what did the disciples say when she does that? Anyone know? What a waste. What a waste. There's this song written by this woman, Misty Edwards. Anybody know her? One person, Danielle does. She's a charismatic singer out of um, International House of Prayer in Kansas City, a wild woman, and um, writes weird songs. But some of them are really, really amazing. And um, I remember this song she wrote long ago that I can't even find that I would tell you if I, if I could because it's so good. But she wrote a song about, and all her songs are like 25 minutes long, about this scripture And I remember in one part of it, I think about it all the time, she was saying, I want to take my passions and put them in a bottle just to waste them at your feet. Like she wants to take all of her dreams, all the things that are the, the hopes for her life, all the things she loves, all the things she wants, put it in a bottle and let it be wasted at the feet of Jesus. And what does Jesus say to the woman after they say, what a waste? Jesus says, She has done a beautiful thing for me. And I think that's exactly what he would say to this man as well. He has done a beautiful thing for me. While the nine would walk in the other direction, following the law, being obedient, this one turns in recognition of who he is and throws himself down at the feet of Jesus in thanks and praise, as the text says. These Greek words there, doxazo and eucharisto, are words that are repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament as the work of the church the work of people who have encountered Jesus and who are now living out this life of salvation, are living this life of thanks and praise. It's where we get the words doxology and Eucharist from, that we offer to Jesus our worship when we come here together on Sundays, and then we receive his body and blood and thankfulness. Martin Luther, I love this. Martin Luther referred to us here today, all of us. Worship people who worship God as the 10th leper turning back. That's what we're doing here together every Sunday. And that's the question for me in this part of the text. Are we the kinds of people? Am I the kind of person? Are we the kind of church that's just responding in obedience? Smart folks, obedient folks, but even I've found in our obedience, we can often be walking away from the one who's telling us to do the thing. Or are we the kinds of people, are we the kind of church where our worship is characterized by an outpouring of praise and thanks to God, intimacy with Jesus, our lives being wasted at his feet? Is that, is that who we are? Is that who you are? Is that who I am? I want to close with a story about someone for whom I, I know and I think this is true of her life. These examples are helpful. She's a woman who goes to this church, um, and I have the very great privilege of calling her a friend. Um, but she grew up as uh, one of two sisters, and then she had cousins who lived nearby, and they were also sisters, two sisters. So the four of them grew up together like the sisterhood of the traveling pants, just like, you know, at, at the hip with one another just all the time. They were like basically all four like sisters. And they grew into great friends and became adults and were still great friends. And their kids loved each other and just wonderful things. And then a few years ago, several years back, one of them is the woman who goes to church, her cousin, um, got cancer and slowly just became more and more sick over time and then ultimately died a few years ago. And, um, and then last year... During Lent, I get a call from this woman who goes to this church, and she asks me to go to what she's calling a resurrection lunch, um, which was in the middle of Lent, and she realized was a little bit spiritually anachronistic, but it was okay. Um, We're all Christians, so... So we go have this lunch. She invites me to her favorite restaurant and pays for everything. And she brings these uh, fancy chocolates that she bought, I think, from California or somewhere. And just, it was like, it was like we were sitting down to have a party. And I sit down with her at this lunch. And she says, I just want to tell you stories about her. And I just want to thank God that this isn't the end of her story. Because of who Jesus is, she will meet this person again. And It's a good story. Even in the face of death, this woman thought, Jesus deserves all of my thanks and all of my praise. And for that, I can sit here and celebrate on the day that she died a year ago. All of her life, like, wasted on Jesus there in front of me at this table, at a restaurant indicator. (laughs) And it was like one of the great joys of my life to sit there with her and, and, and watch this sort of life being lived out in front of me. My prayer for us is that we are the kinds of people who have resurrection lunches and, uh, and hear from God and pour our lives back out to him. And it's not just that we're doing it in obedience, but we're doing it because there is no other option because of how good he is. How good he has been to us. How good he is just himself and the work that he's done in our lives, that we all are a church full of the 10th leper turning back. My prayer for us.